Hello. Okay. So um, I have the honor of bringing you uh, the word of the Lord this morning that Michael will be preaching on. I'll be reading out of Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 20. Please stand for the reading. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. And others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. How's everybody? We're going to be, we are going to be in Matthew in that passage today and in a few other places. Um, but I, uh, I had the opportunity, the privilege, if you don't know, most of you do know, to take a sabbatical this summer. And I'm very grateful for that and for your extending that to me over the course of 16 weeks. And one of the things I was counseled to do before the sabbatical uh, by one of my mentors was take some time to do something you've never done before. And one of my friends who took a sabbatical a couple of years ago, he went skydiving. That was the thing he'd never done before that he wanted to do on sabbatical. And I thought about that and I said, no. <laughs> no, thanks. Um, but something I'd wanted to do since I was a kid that I've never done before, never learned how to do was surf. And so I uh, linked up with my buddy, Mark Gaddy, and I asked him if he would take me to Santa Cruz or we'd go together. I could take my, you know, we got there together. And spent a week, and he could teach me how to surf in Santa Cruz during the week. Um, and so we did that in June, spent a week down there. There were a few days where there's absolutely no surf. So we got on our bikes and rode our mountain bikes instead those days. Uh, but the couple days we were able to get out there was really great. And, and Mark uh, did some teaching, and then he also introduced me to his sister-in-law, uh, Katie, who was a really good surf instructor. So she actually taught me things. Um, <laughs> and... Uh, as, as we got out there, it was interesting because if you went to Santa Cruz and tried to surf by yourself, you'd probably actually get in trouble. You might even get beat up. Uh, because there's places uh, where um, if you're a novice surfer, if you've never surfed before, you shouldn't go. And there's also a certain etiquette for being in the water on a surfboard and, and how, you, how, you work, how you work the waves and how you go and don't go and get out of people's way and um, so they taught me some of that stuff, you know, when you, when you want to catch a wave, like get ready and get going, but make sure you look to your left, because if somebody else is on the wave, you don't get to take that wave, and I only got ran into three times by people, 
But I never ran into anybody else, so I, I take that as a victory. Um, but another one of the things, if you, if you go there, there's certain places um, where, like, experts surf. So is it Peak One? Is that what it's called, off the point? Or First Peak? First Peak, thank you. First Peak is the place where the really, really, really good, like, expert pro surfers surf. Um, and then the second couple peaks, good surfers could surf there, and you pretty much need to be a local. Like, Katie could surf there, but Mark and I would probably get beat up if we tried to surf there. We would at least get yelled out of the water. And there's just all this stuff that I had to learn, and they had to teach me in, in regards to etiquette for surfing. I needed someone to teach me kind of those unwritten rules. So have you ever been in a situation like that where you just kind of don't know what the unwritten rules are? You need, you need a mentor. You need a teacher. You need someone to kind of tell you how to, how to live within a, a new system if you get a new job or you move into a new community or something like that to teach you what to do and what not to do and how to act so that you don't get yourself in trouble. And that, that really helped me to have two people who knew what they were doing mentor me and take me into the water. And this, this morning as we, as we look at the last half of Matthew 16, 19, we're going to see some of that in, at play, and I'll get to that in a little bit. But, but be thinking about that. How do, we, how do we as believers, as followers of Christ, learn how to live in this new kingdom, in this kingdom that we've been invited to as we're invited to follow Jesus? And so we're in Matthew 16, 19. We spent the week last week on the first half of the verse in which um, Jesus said this to Peter after Peter had had confessed that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of, the God, Son of God. Um, Jesus got excited about that, and then he told Peter, basically, God revealed this to you. You didn't figure it out on yourself. And then he says this, I will give you, verse 19, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, which is kind of a big, profound statement. And if you weren't here last week, if you didn't listen to last week's sermon, um, some of what I say today may not make sense if you didn't listen to that, so I'd encourage you to, to go back and, and listen to this series of sermons here in Matthew 16 because they all kind of fit together and feed into each other. But what I want to do to start with this morning is look at a biblical example of the keys of the kingdom from Matthew chapter 10. So we're actually going to go back about six chapters before Jesus ever even mentions the kingdom and look at an instance in which I believe the keys of the kingdom are granted to, the, to his disciples, and it gives us a picture of what the keys actually are and how they work. So a little background to this story is that Jesus is sending out his 12 disciples. These are guys who've been hanging out with Jesus for a while. They've been watching him do his thing. They've been listening to him teach and proclaim the kingdom of God, healing people, uh, making lepers clean, giving people sight, raising the dead, and doing all sorts of things, casting out demons. And they've just been watching this. And, and I'm sure that their eyes were the size of saucers sometimes as they watched the things that Jesus did. And now Jesus turns to them and says, okay, guys, it's your turn. Now you go out. And you do the same kind of things that I've been doing. And these are the instructions he gives them in Matthew 10, starting at verse 7. He says this, And proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's the same exact thing that Jesus preached. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. And we'll drop down to verse 14. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly, I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. 
And in this story, as I've already said, Jesus is giving his disciples the permission and the, the ability to do many of the very things that he himself had been doing. And, and perhaps recklessly, he's entrusted them, like, like a nervous father entrusting the keys to the family Porsche to his you know, 16-year-old newly licensed son. Jesus is maybe recklessly entrusting them with test driving the keys of the kingdom. Now, now what do I mean by that? And there's three things here. The first is that by proclaiming the kingdom's arrival, these apostles are actually opening the door of the kingdom of heaven. They're opening the door by proclaiming the gospel. Now, now last week I I pointed out that the keys give access to the kingdom. They, They open the door. The kingdom of heaven is opened when the good news about the kingdom of heaven is preached, when it's proclaimed. The doors are open and people can enter. So the keys of the kingdom first give entry to the kingdom to those who welcome the message, those who submit to King Jesus through repentance and faith. That's a little summary of last week's message. But second, we see in this story that the apostles, these sent ones of Jesus, that's what the word apostle means, sent one, these apostles actually embody, they act out the message of the gospel through actually wielding miraculous power, the the ability to do miracles, to see the power of heaven actually come into the earth. They enact the presence of the kingdom through healing, through resurrecting, through imparting ritual purity to to lepers, to to exercising demons. Now, Now, this is kind of a big deal. I mean, how many of us look at that list and go like, oh yeah, I did that on Tuesday, and I exercised some demons yesterday, and I raised somebody from the dead last Saturday? You know, we don't, we don't usually see those things. Those are a big deal. So, so not only do they open the kingdom for people to get in, like open the door, come on in, but it's like they're opening, unlocking the door for kingdom blessings to enter into our world to enter into the physical realm that that we don't usually experience. So the presence of the power of the kingdom is a sign here that the keys of the kingdom are being used. So here's the second point, is that the keys of the kingdom give access to the power of the kingdom. And and then third and finally, while while the apostles are opening the kingdom to some through their preaching, their preaching is actually closing the kingdom to others. Okay, keys don't just unlock and open, but they also close and lock. Jesus warns the disciples that they will come up against people who will not respond receptively to the gospel, who will not respond to their message openly. And he gives the apostles permission to actually render judgment on those who reject the message of the kingdom. Effectively, in a sense, locking them out. So look at verse 14. If anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. And that's shaking off the dust is symbolically just saying, look, we're, we're leaving you with all your stuff, all of your dirt, all of your dust, all of your sin. We're leaving that with you. We're moving on, and you are on your own. Now, the apostles aren't given just carte blanche permission to lock anyone out that they don't like. Like, okay, we don't like the tax collectors. We don't like the people from Bend or Portland. or <laughs> like We're locking them out. They, they don't have permission to do that. Jesus, Jesus isn't telling them, whoever you choose is out. He's, he's saying, and he actually had to rebuke them. You remember this story where some of the disciples, James and John, 
um, ask Jesus, hey, the people from that village just rejected you. Can we call down fire from heaven? Wouldn't that be awesome? And Jesus rebukes them and says that you've got a totally different spirit than me in this. He has to rebuke them in that. They don't have permission to do that. It's not up to the disciples who's in and who's out. Rather, it's dependent on the receptivity of the hearers, whether or not their hearts are open. Are their hearts open or hardened? Do they accept or do they reject the message? And based on that acceptance or rejection, then the disciples are opening or closing the kingdom. So the point here is that the keys of the kingdom limit entry as well. They bar access to the kingdom to those who reject both the message and the king, to those who refuse to repent and believe. And so it's this, it's this final aspect of the keys, this shutting of the door, that I want to spend just a moment thinking about. I want to look at for a few minutes, because last week we really looked at how Peter used the gospel to open up the kingdom to many people. So in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost, Peter preached the gospel. He talked about Jesus, the risen Savior, and 3,000 souls came to Jesus and were baptized that day and entered into the church. He opened up the kingdom to these people. Six chapters later, he goes to Samaria, and he, again, after Philip the evangelist has been there, he and John come, and the Spirit comes on these Samaritans, and they open up the kingdom for them. And then in Acts chapter 10, Peter goes and opens up the kingdom for the Gentiles to enter. But there's at least two other moments, two other stories in the book of Acts where Peter uses the keys, I believe, to close the kingdom to those with hard hearts. So if you want to turn there, you can with me. We're going to begin by looking really quickly at Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, with the story of a, of a couple, a husband and wife, named Ananias and Sapphira. And Acts is just a few books to the right. If you're in Matthew, it's Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. So the fifth book of the New Testament. This couple named Ananias and Sapphira, they're members of the church in Jerusalem in the very, very early days of the church. They may have been some of those people who heard Peter preach the gospel on Pentecost and come to faith and baptize in them. So they're Jewish, now they're Christians, and what the church was doing at that time was they were sharing everything they had. So there's all these people in Jerusalem who were now following Jesus and they had needs. So they had to care for each other. Many of them didn't live there, so they needed food, they needed housing. And so people like Barnabas were going and selling property and taking the money from that property and giving it to the apostles so they could distribute it to whoever had need. Well, Ananias and Sapphira, they watched this happening and they go, hey, guess what? We've got a piece of property so why don't we go ahead and sell that property and bring some of those proceeds to give, to, to share with the people. Now, they're free to do with that property what they want. They could sell it, they could give some of it, they could do nothing, but they choose out of pride to lie and basically say that, hey, we are giving all, 100% of the proceeds to the church, but in their greed, they actually hold some back. They pretend to give the entirety because they wanted people to recognize them. They wanted people to praise them for their generosity, and yet they couldn't quite do it because of their greed. So Peter confronts them for, the, for their duplicity, and God strikes them dead on the spot. It's a crazy story, and it's a pretty extreme example. I'm not saying that God does that every day, today. I'm not saying he can't, but I'm also saying it's not the normal way that God deals with us in our pride, in our duplicity, and in our greed. 
right? He doesn't normally deal that way anymore. But the, the message is clear here that if we continue to pridefully and greedily build our own kingdoms, and that's what they were doing. They were building their own kingdom. If we continue to do that, that our failure to repent can actually bar entry to the kingdom. And the kingdom can be shut on us if we fail to repent and believe. Now, the second story is found in Acts chapter 8, verses 9 to 24. And this is when the the evangelist Philip goes to Samaria, the the area that's between Galilee and Judea, and it's it's filled with these Samaritans who are kind of half Jewish, half Gentile, and they are usually despised and looked down on by the Jews at the time. Well, this, this man named Simon is a magician, and he's a very powerful man in that area because of his wonder-working, and because of the magic he's able to do, whatever that was, he had some, some heavy influence in the area. Well, he's converted. He listens to the gospel. He responds to it. He gets baptized, and then he begins to follow Philip around, and he's amazed at all the powerful miracles that, that Philip is able to do because of the Holy Spirit. Now, Peter and John, these two big apostles, show up. The Samaritan believers receive the Holy Spirit as, as these two men lay their hands on him. And Simon is watching this, and he's like, wow, moneymaker. Okay, and, he, and he offers Peter money and says, hey, if I pay you, can you give me the ability to do that? Because, man, that would be a really great, that'd be a really great thing to have. It would be a really great way to make some money, continue to hold on to the power and influence that I have. And it seems like Simon here, too, is greedily and pridefully attempting to build his own kingdom. And Peter's response is not, yeah, let's do a 40-60 split or something like that. He's like, no, he clearly rebukes Simon. And he warns Simon of judgment if he doesn't repent. And then he calls Simon to repent. Simon doesn't drop dead like Ananias and Sapphira did. He has an option to repent here. We don't know how the story ends. We don't know if he actually repented or not. But if he doesn't, he will be locked out of the kingdom. So, so in both of these instances, we, we find individuals, three particular individuals, who in some sense have responded in some measure to the message of the gospel... They responded to the message of the gospel, but the implications of the gospel haven't taken root in them. It hasn't changed their lives. It hasn't changed their own desire to build their own kingdoms. And because their lives haven't and don't manifest the repentance that's required to enter the kingdom, the keys were actually used to lock them out, or potentially, in Simon's case, to lock him out of the kingdom because of their non-repentance. Okay, now binding and loosing. This is the last half of chapter 16, verse 19. And it really ties into this idea of shutting or locking the kingdom. And as we talk about shutting or locking the kingdom, that's not very PC. It's not very politically correct for me to get up here and and say, hey, uh, if you don't repent, you might just fall over dead. To our sensibilities, it seems judgmental, it seems exclusive, it seems harsh. Um, who are we, right? Who am I? Who are we? Who's Peter to, as mere humans to say we can lock people out of the kingdom? What kind of pride is that? But if we believe the gospel, if we're actually listening to Jesus, 
we must take this verse seriously, right? We must take the keys of the kingdom very seriously. And that that brings us then to this metaphor at the end of verse 19 of binding and loosing. So let's look again at Matthew 16, verse 19, where Jesus says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, it's easy to read that verse and kind of, well, it's easy to read it and just go like, I don't get that, moving on, Um, which is why we're spending time in it to to try to figure out what Jesus is actually saying here. It's easy to inaccurately conflate, though, these two metaphors. There's the metaphors of the keys of the kingdom, and then there's these metaphor of binding and loosing in the second part of the verse. They're similar, they're related metaphors, and and perhaps they overlap in some ways, and together they give us an idea of what Jesus is really saying here. But they're not precisely the same. So so, so they serve to give us a fuller picture of the keys of the kingdom, but we don't want to overlap them. So the keys of the kingdom refers to opening and shutting, right? Unlocking and locking, granting access or refusing access to something. That makes sense, right? Keys, that's what you do with keys. Binding and loosing, on the other hand, paint a picture of attachment, attachment or detachment. Okay, tying something up or untying it. Burdening, placing a burden on someone or freeing them from that burden. Forbidding something or permitting something. Those are the, those are the ideas. Think of it, if you, you could think of it in terms of a promise or a, a covenant or an oath. When someone makes an oath, they are bound to that oath. You've heard that language, right? So you're bound to an oath. You're bound to your words. You make that, and there's, there's a binding there in your oath that I'm, I'm bound to do the things that I said I do. And if you fail to fulfill the terms of that oath, if you fail to keep your word, then you're liable to punishment of some sort. As an example, when, when Jesus accused the Pharisees of unjustly requiring strict observance to some of their laws, which were man-made laws, ungodly, really, legalistic rules. Here's what he said to them in Matthew 23, or about them. He said, They, the Pharisees and the scribes, they tie up or they bind heavy burdens, hard to bear. So there's this picture of I'm filling up this huge backpack with like gold bars, and I'm putting it on your back. Say, here, you need to carry this. They're tying up or binding these heavy burdens on people, which are hard to bear. They lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with their finger. Here you go. Here's your 400-pound backpack. Now have a nice day. I'm not going to help you. So that, that hopefully gives you kind of a picture of what Jesus is talking about when he's talking about binding and loosing. It's putting something on your back or taking it off the back, binding you to it, tying you to it, or releasing you from it. So loosing, then, is simply the opposite of binding. Untying a burden, granting freedom, releasing from an oath. Okay, are you with me so far? All right, so here's an example. Returning to the book of Acts. Okay, so we're kind of back and forth between Matthew and Acts. I believe we see, actually, the prime example of what Jesus means by binding and loosing. We see it in Acts chapter 15. And the backstory here is that Thousands of people have been coming to faith in Jesus. There on the day of Pentecost, at the very beginning of the church, when the Holy Spirit came, and 3,000 people came. And then a little while later, a couple thousand more came. But then persecution came on the church. 
right? Stephen, the, the deacon, Stephen, he was stoned to death. And the, the Jews began to persecute the church, which scattered, which is the way that God used to kind of scatter them away from Jerusalem. So they went to Samaria, and they went to other places, preaching the gospel and taking that gospel. And as they did that, as the gospel spread throughout the Roman world, not only were Jews coming to faith, but non-Jews were beginning to believe in Jesus as well. Gentiles, they were coming and believing in Jesus and becoming part of the church. So as more and more Gentiles, as more and more non-Jews joined the church, it caused some disagreements among the Jewish Christians. Because the, the Jews were the first Christians, right? Christianity is really the outgrowth, the culmination, the fulfillment of what Israel is supposed to be, of, of Judaism. The Messiah has come. And so all these Gentiles are coming in, and, and some of the more serious Jews believed that in order for a Gentile, a non-Jew, to become a Christian, they had to first become a Jew. Usually for men, that would mean circumcision. They had to first become a Jew, keep the law, and then they could become a Christian. So there's this debate then in the early church on what it means to be a believer. Do you have to become a Jew, or can you remain a Gentile? And this conflict comes to a climax in Acts chapter 15 at a, at a meeting called the Jerusalem Council, the first major council of the church, where the leaders of the early church, like Peter, John, Paul, Barnabas, James, they gather to consider and discuss and decide on this matter. In other words, should the Gentiles be bound by the Jewish law or should they be loosed? From the Jewish law. So there's a binding and a loosing question here. And here's what Peter says in response to all this in Acts chapter 15, verse 10. He says to them, Why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples? In other words, here's this burden. A yoke is, you know, what two oxen wore on their necks between themselves as they plowed a field. A yoke. Why are you putting a yoke? On the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. Why are you wanting to bind them to something that we can't even carry? So in conjunction with the Holy Spirit, the Jerusalem Council decided that it was not incumbent on Gentiles, on Gentile believers, to be bound by the Jewish law in order to become a part of the church. Rather, Gentile Christians were loosed from those burdens. They were freed from the burden of the law, but at the same time, get this, they were bound to another law. They were bound to act in love towards their Jewish brothers and sisters who might be offended by certain behaviors that are part of their normal life. So here's what the Jerusalem Council instructs the people in verse 28. It says, It has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements. And they line out about three or four requirements, which are basically things that they can do to not offend their Jewish brothers and sisters. It's just to not be offensive to them and live in good relationship to them. So, so you with me there? You see how there's a binding and a loosing there happening. We're, we're loosening you from the law, but we're binding you to the law of love. So I think there's four implications that binding and loosing has for us. Four relevant implications that we can kind of take out of here and can begin to understand what's, what Jesus is teaching in this verse. And the first is that binding and loosing has to do with defining the boundaries of Christian behavior. 
Okay, defining the boundaries of Christian behavior. So there's a moral or an ethical element to it. In terms of binding then, the question is, so, so imagine you're um, coming to faith for the first time, and all of us have done that, I hope. What kind of behavior makes a distinctly Christian ethic? In, in other words, what does distinctly Christian behavior look like versus a pagan ethic or a worldly what you might call a degenerate ethic or, or, a, or an ethic of the world, a non-Christian ethic. What's the difference? In other words, what are, what are Christians bound to that they were not before they began to follow Jesus? What are we bound to? What kind of behavior are we bound to that we weren't before we followed Jesus? Now, Christians are called to be holy as God is holy. In other words, we, we don't just get to do whatever we want. And the norm here in the New Testament is what Jesus calls and, and the apostles call the law of love, the golden rule, the great commandment, right? Love God, love your neighbor, do, do unto others as you would have done unto you. And that should impact every area of our lives. So the apostle Paul puts it this way in Romans 13, owe no one anything except what? To love each other. In other words, don't be bound to anything except for loving each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. And as we live lives where we actually love each other, we'll find ourselves being bound in certain ways, right? I can't do this, I can't do this, I can't do this because I need to love. All right, now in terms of loosing, the question is, what kind of behavior makes a distinctly Christian ethic versus a Jewish ethic, or, or what we might call a religious or legalistic ethic. In other words, what are Christians loosed from that we were not before we were freed from the law? What non-essential religious rule-keeping behaviors no longer apply because of what Jesus has done for us? The norm here is called the ethic of freedom. So we have the ethic of love and the ethic of freedom. Galatians 5.1, again the Apostle Paul. He says, For freedom Christ has set you free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit. Here's that image again. Do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. You've been freed from this yoke of slavery. In other words, don't bind yourself to things that Jesus has loosed you from. If Jesus has freed you from something, why would you submit again to that thing that Jesus has freed you from? But of course, the ethic of freedom must always submit to the law of love. So later on in Galatians chapter 5, verses 13 and 14, Paul writes, You were called the freedom brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh to do whatever you want to do, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, so, so binding and loosing then has everything to do with these two general principles of, of being bound to love and loosed in freedom. And that is how, those are kind of the general contours of how we should live our lives. Now, we have to apply those two things to everyday situations, don't we? And so the continued ministry of the church is by, of binding and loosing is handing, handed down to us as the Spirit would lead us in how to live in this culture, in this day, in our own lives, in a way that honors Christ. And that leads us really into the second implication of binding and loosing, which is that binding and loosing define the teaching ministry of Jesus' disciples. And 
Jesus makes this very clear at the end of Matthew, in Matthew 28, when he gives the, the Great Commission. He says, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then what? Teaching them doctrine. Right? Teaching them all the right answers to the theology exam. Teaching them how to drive a car. What are, what are, we, te- what is he, what are we supposed to teach? Teaching them to obey. It says it right there. Observe, to obey all that I have commanded you. So this, this is what Mark and Katie did for me out on the water in Santa Cruz, is they taught me surfing etiquette. They discipled me how to behave on the waves, what to do and what not to do. Now, unfortunately, I didn't do the, hey, get up on your surfboard thing and ride it all the way in, but they, they gave me the parameters of what it meant to be a surfer, right? They discipled me in that. As followers of Jesus, we have been and are being taught to observe all that Jesus has commanded. In other words, teach, when, we're, when we're discipling people, we're to teach them how to live. Teach them what we're bound to and what we're loosed from. What does it mean to live in the kingdom? If we're Jesus' apprentices, then we've given ourselves to learn from him. Not just learning information, but learning a way of living in the kingdom, observing all he has commanded us to. And so if we go back to the the first implication, Jesus' commands define how we're bound to love and loosed in freedom. We've been taught the way of Jesus, and we also have to work at it, right? It doesn't come naturally to us just to to live like Jesus. We have to fight to be able to do that. So we need believers who have walked the road before us to teach us the way of Jesus. Here's the life of Jesus. Here's what it means to live in the kingdom, how to walk in the ways of the kingdom. And it's imperative for us then to pass on what it means to live a life bound to love and loosed in freedom to those who are coming behind us. Because we're supposed to make disciples, right? That's the job description of the church. That's all of our job description is passing this on to the next generation. The third implication of binding and loosing is that it has a disciplinary aspect to it. And we'll get more into this in Matthew chapter 18, just a couple chapters. And I said we'll get to that next year, and you guys laughed at me a couple weeks ago, and it'll probably be April before we get to that, okay? So um, we, see that, we saw this in the story of Ananias and Sapphira in, in Acts chapter 5. Paul addresses it throughout his letters, especially in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. But any kind of submission to authority, and, and so if we come into the kingdom, if we enter the kingdom through repentance and faith, we're submitting ourselves to Christ as our king, and that automatically comes with submission to accountability. Right? If I say I trust and want to follow Jesus then I'm committing to obey his commands. You might say that I've bound myself to Jesus' way of life. I've taken his yoke upon me so that I can learn from him. But when I fail to submit to his commands, when I start wandering off the path, it's the role of the community, it's the role of my church family to lovingly correct me and help me to return to the path. And that correction is called discipline. And in her ministry of binding and loosing, the the gathered, spirit-filled church has authority to lovingly correct and discipline her members. Now, that's the third implication, but let's look at the fourth. And the fourth implication 
is that binding and loosing connects heaven to earth. And this is really where the major metaphor that the keys of binding and loosing become intertwined. Remember back in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus said, pray this way, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth, on earth as it is in heaven. And now Jesus says this, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. There in verse 19. Now, I think the better translation of this verse, and you may actually have this in the footnotes of your Bible, goes, some, goes like this. Whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. Now, between those two translations, you, you should be able to instantly kind of feel the difference in force, the, the difference in perspective between those two translations. In the first, what seems to be taking place is that heaven is dependent, or God is dependent, on what takes place on earth. In other words, Peter can make a decision, and God endorses his decision no matter what. It kind of feels that way, right? Whatever you guys decide, then God's good with. I'll put my rubber stamp on. But in the second translation, what takes place on earth is a reflection of what previously has taken place in heaven. So in the case of Ananias and Sapphira, Peter was really merely a messenger of a decision that had already been made by the Holy Spirit based on Ananias' and Sapphira's deception. Later in chapter 15, the Jerusalem Council discovered God's will in binding and loosing in conjunction with the Holy Spirit. So, so Jesus is not saying that the church has divine authority to unilaterally bind or loose, to dictate behavior, to forgive sins, or set up a new law apart from God, and then force God to go along with it. God is in charge. This is his kingdom. And when the church is submitting to him, he will guide her. He'll guide her in her responsibilities under the authority that he's given her. And perhaps the biggest implication here is that as the Spirit-filled church acts as the assembly of Jesus, the people of God in this world, the kingdom is present on the earth. And that, my friends, is a beautiful, wondrous reality that God is present with us, that he promises to be with us always. He says, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among you. Now, our job is to live into that, right? to live into that kingdom reality. What does it look like to walk with Jesus and follow him in his kingdom what does it mean for us to live loosed into freedom and bound to love? Well, first of all, I think if you belong to Christ by faith, and if you don't belong to Christ by faith, today's a great day to follow Jesus for the first time. If you've never put your faith in him, if you've never trusted him, if you've never turned away from building your own kingdoms to, Jesus, to King Jesus to submit to him and enter his kingdom, today is the day to do that. Because when you, when you belong to Christ by faith, when you trust him, you have been loosed from the law, from all the requirements of the law. Christ has fulfilled those for you. He has done it for you. You don't have to try to earn God's love. You don't have to clean up your act to get him to accept you. You don't have to carry around a weight or burden of guilt and shame or behavior or achievement. You're freed from all that. If you are Christ, your Father loves you. 
And he loves to call you son, daughter, beloved. He loves to treat you as his child. There's nothing you can do to make God love you more. There's nothing you can do to make God love you less. So we get to live as people who are free because of Christ. Now, secondly, if you belong to Christ by faith, you've also been bound to Christ for eternity. You're united to him. Praise God. I have no idea what that means, but the Bible says it. We're bound to Christ. We're united to him forever. And in that, we are bound to the law of love. So Christ has freed you from trying to please God with all of your energy. He has freed you now in Christ to love richly and extravagantly and freely. We get to do that. So why don't we go out those doors and do that? First, we need to help Wayne load up his trailer, which is an act of love, right? Is this not an act of love? As we send these to all, I don't know if they're going to Antarctica, but the other five continents, other than North America, we, we send love throughout the world. And we get to go do that in our workplaces, in our na- neighborhoods, with our friends, with our family, even with strangers. And this morning as we, we come and take the Lord's Supper, the communion this morning, as we usually do each week, we're reminded of the work that Christ has done for us to free us from the demands of the law to win us to God and into his family, to become united with him for eternity. We're reminded of that and we celebrate that. So as we take of these elements, if you're a follower of Jesus, celebrate. Let's celebrate together and remember the freedom we have in Christ and the love that he wants to send us out into the world with. If you've never given your faith to Christ or if you've never given your heart to him, if you've never submitted to him and entered his kingdom, today is a day you can do that. But if you wouldn't say that, if you, if you would say, no, I don't, I don't know about Jesus, I'm not sure, I want to submit to him, this all sounds a little wacko, then I, we, we'd love that you're here, but just maybe don't participate in, in the meal this morning, but you can participate in the music and be with us this morning. And I would say to all of us, something that was brought up to me this last week, one of the things the scripture tells us as we come to the table, as we come to worship, if we have something against another believer, if we have something in our hearts that we're holding against something that's actually binding us, it's actually holding, holding on to us because we haven't made it right with somebody. Now's the time to do that. Before you come to the table, and I'm talking about get up and go make it right. Make a phone call. Have a conversation because Paul says if we don't see the body, if we don't recognize the body of Christ for what it is and we're living in tension, we can actually eat and drink judgment on ourselves. So I call you this morning to the table to come and recall, remember the freedom that God has given us. And that's also freedom to be reconciled, freedom to be at peace, freedom for things to be made right. This morning we're going to do communion a little bit differently. I'm going to invite everybody to come up while Melissa comes and plays some music just quietly. Come grab the elements and just go back to your seat and hold on to them for a few minutes until everybody's finished. Uh, We'll hold on to them and we'll take them together after just a few minutes. So let's pray and then come to the table. Our Father, we do come to you this morning. We are grateful for Christ. We're grateful for the gospel that he has brought, that he proclaimed, that he gave to his disciples to proclaim to the world. We're grateful for the spirit that you have poured out on us that we might ourselves believe and repent and enter the kingdom. And God, as we've already confessed this morning during our time of confession, we would even confess now that there's so many ways that we build our own kingdom 
There are so many ways that we are bound and allow ourselves to come under a yoke of slavery again and we get worried about behaving for you and we get legalistic about things. In Christ, we praise you for freeing us from all of that. This morning, as we take of these elements, we remember your body broken, the suffering you went through, the death you walked through for us, the blood that you spilled on our behalf that we might be forgiven, the punishment you took in our place. God, would you free us? Would you free our hearts and our minds and our souls from those things that shouldn't bind us? And would you bind us to you, unite us with you, that we might submit to your law of love freely and joyfully and generously going from this place ready to love just as you would if you were in our shoes. Lord, we thank you again that you have moved in us to fill up these boxes and as you send them to the ends of the earth where they get in the precisely the right child's hands and may they know perhaps for the first time the love of Jesus and the generosity of a good heavenly father. So we come again today knowing that you, Father, are good, that when we ask for serpents, you give us fish, and when we ask for rocks, you give us bread. You are so good to us, so faithful, and we're thankful. We praise you for all these things and pray in Jesus' name, amen.